thankful for the little break here and excited about doing uh, this little mini-series on these topics, different issues that we address on a consistent basis in the What About series. And today we're going to be asking, what about God's good plan in my suffering? Uh, What about God's good plan in my suffering? The problem this morning is that there is widespread confusion um, across the whole of Christianity, isn't that a funny statement to say, as if I know what confusion is like across the whole of Christianity. In my experience with Christians across a wide spectrum, there is confusion as to what God's good plan is for his people. But there is some confidence inherent in the Spirit's testimony within us that God is good. So those two things end up being problematic for For God's people, we're not exactly sure how God is good, but we're pretty sure that God is good. In fact, we know the word says he's good. And so in our circumstance, which is on the surface level from a human perspective, anything but good, we know God is still good. We're just not entirely sure how he's good in what he's doing in this circumstance in my life right now. We are tempted to use worldly means to come up with a definition for God's goodness or a thought of how God is good in bad circumstances from a human perspective. We're so prone to this that there's familiar statements that maybe will help you understand what we're going to address this morning as we think from God's word, I trust God's thoughts after him. Maybe you've said or been told or heard someone say something like, Hey, man, I'm sorry about the engagement being broken off. But it only means that God has a better wife for you than the one that you were going to marry. Right? I mean, that, that, must, be what, that must be what God's good plan is. I mean, this, this shattered relationship, your crushed heart, must mean that God's going to give you a better gal to marry than, than that one. Right? I'm so sorry you lost your job. But we can be confident that you'll get a better one soon since all things work together for good. Is that true? Is that exactly what God's good plan is in someone losing their employment? Can we say that statement? That sounds nice. In the immediate, that's very encouraging. Thank you. I hope that's true. I can't believe that my daughter's friend passed away so suddenly but I know something good has to come of it. Maybe someone will get saved at the funeral or something. Or maybe this, son or daughter, I know it's hard to move for daddy's job. But God will give you new and better friends in the next town because he works all things together for good. Or in the more raw moment, maybe this is more familiar How could this awful scenario possibly be better for me than it not happening to me? I thought God was good. I mean, maybe that's where we exist. Maybe Psalm 84 verse 11, which says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Just doesn't make sense in your life circumstance. And maybe your thought is, if God is good and he withholds nothing from me that is good for me and for his glory, then how can I possibly be going through this? 
Those two do not connect. And for so many believers, this is a constant theme. How can God's goodness possibly jive with what I'm going through in my life? I mean, God's goodness is nice. I mean, that's a nice thing to talk about. God is good. and God is great. I mean, that's the earliest little pithy prayer, if you want to call it that, that, that little children learn. God is good and God is great. And yet, when we face life, and especially as God's people, when we face life, we find out quickly that life is not always good. And so if God is good, and He bestows goodness on His people, then what about God's goodness in my life? That's the question that we face again and again. Is there clarity from God about God's goodness in the suffering of his people. And I believe that God's word does provide that for us. So with the, the very realistic and raw perspective that faces many of you. And if it's not facing you now, you have faced it. And if you haven't faced it and you're not facing it now, you probably will face it. Of life bringing such grief and suffering to you that it is very difficult to connect God's goodness and to put the dots in order in your life. And you just think either God is not on the throne. He's either not sovereign because he allowed this to happen. Or he's not good. Because if he's sovereign and good, then this wouldn't be taking place. But I propose to you this morning that if we go to Romans chapter 8. And we allow the spirit of God through the word of God to reveal to us the mind of God we find God's good plan is perfectly, clearly revealed to us. In fact, it's revealed in one of the most familiar and torn out of context and abused verses in your Bible. In the early days of my heart being awakened to expository teaching and to a depth of understanding that carefully takes into account what the word of God actually says in its context. I remember this passage being on the, the first five that I ran into. You see, in verse number 28 of Romans chapter 8, we know this verse by heart, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. So we have some grasp that there, there is a good plan. But unfortunately, because we don't take this verse in its context, I believe often as God's people, we are unprepared or we are poorly prepared to face suffering and to still believe it. And so we grasp because our hearts resonate with the scriptures and the spirit testifies that this verse is true. So we grasp for some way that this must be good. This horrible event has got to have some good conclusion. When in the context, God tells you what the good conclusion is. He tells you what you can anticipate. He tells you what you can be thankful for. He tells you how you can find rest and contentment in the midst of suffering. Because God does have a good plan. And His good plan is found for us in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Now, context is king. That should be... We should have t-shirts made at some point that say context is king. And somebody will say, what in the world is that? Just be like, I read my Bible. 
okay? Uh, or I love the Bible. Whether or not you can say I read it or not is uh, a whole other story. I love the Bible and I want context to matter. What is context? Context is what's happening in the section in which we're reading a verse. And why is that so critical? Well, because God reveals himself to us. He speaks to us through a written document. So in some senses, the Bible is no different than any other written document. It is meant to communicate specific truths. And it would be as if you took a Tom Clancy novel and opened it to the middle, read a paragraph, and then derived truth from that paragraph. That's the same concept of opening your Bible at a much grander scale with the very living words of God. Not taking into account what is happening in your context taking a verse like verse 28 and just saying, I'm going to pull that verse out, I'm going to set it up on the mantle, and I'm going to believe what I want to believe, it means. So context is king for us this morning, and not only that, we're in one of the most complex letters that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it is not easy to get the context this morning. In fact, I've got two pages worth of context, which somehow, I don't see a clock in here. I see lots of trophies, but no clocks. Um, Somehow I've got to whittle down and make useful for you. Let me help you and even help myself as we parachute into Romans. Okay, we're just we're coming right into the middle of something that we don't know. Uh, We're not familiar with this territory. So let me break up Romans for you. And if you're a note taker, I hope this will be helpful if you come back and actually study the entire letter to the Roman church. Romans is divided into four major sections and we're in the second one. In chapter 8, verse 28 through verse 30. The four major sections are chapters 1 through 4, makes up the first section. And it is the heart of the gospel. In chapters 1 through 4, probably you have more verses memorized without even trying than you, than you do in any, any other section of the scriptures. Particularly chapter 3. But in chapters 1 through 4, Paul unfolds the heart of the gospel, which is justification by faith and the forgiveness of sins. He gives us a picture of the, the, the situation of humanity in its dead, sinful state. And he gives us a picture of the glorious work of God in saving sinners. In the second section, which we find ourselves in now, we find the hope of the gospel. So you have the heart of the gospel at the front end, the, the theology of the gospel, and then you have the implications of the gospel. What is the hope that flows from it? Just to set you into that section Look back at chapter 5 and verse 1, which is where this second part begins. Verse, chapter 1 through 4 makes up the first section. Chapters 5 through 8 make the second section. Chapter 5, verse 1, begins with a key word that is a transition word for us that ought to be a marker in our Bibles when we see it. And that word is therefore. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This launches Paul's next section, which carries all the way through the end of chapter 8. Since this has happened, since chapters 1 through 4 is true, chapters 5 through 8 are the effects. So you have the heart of the gospel, and then you have the hope of the gospel. The third section is chapters 9 through 11. Maybe you're familiar with this portion, championing the sovereignty of God. The defense of the gospel. So how is the gospel to be defended as an actual part of humanity? And that's chapters 9 through 11. So you have the heart, the hope, the defense of the gospel. And finally, in chapters 12 through 16, we have a very familiar section 
Um, Therefore, my beloved brothers, verse 1 of chapter 12, I beseech you that you live a certain way. So you have the heart of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, then you find yourself in chapters 9 through 11 with the defense of the gospel. And finally, we see in chapters 12 through 16, the power of the gospel on our lives. So it's the effect. It's, it's how do we live differently because of all of chapters 1 through 11. So we're in the second of these four sections, and we're dealing with the hope of the gospel. Now, within chapter 8, we have a context within a context. So we're at the last chapter of the second section in the third portion of that paragraph. Context is king, but it's a confusing king sometimes. Um, Chapter 8 is not that confusing. Chapter 8, since we read the, the whole chapter in our Bible reading, I hope is a pretty straightforward reading. Here's the bottom line in chapter 8. We have not yet experienced the fullness of the resurrection that we will experience because we're God's children. Okay, that that hasn't happened yet. But in the absence of that happening, what has been given to us as a down payment of that of that future glorification? What's the down payment that's been given in chapter 8? It's the spirit. We've been given the spirit who dwells with us. The spirit is the one that should give us hope. Even creation is waiting for the end, the glorification. All of creation, including God's people, groans waiting for the coming of Christ and the glorification of both the earth and God's people. Verse number 23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, that is the down payment of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, that is the resurrection. So it is totally appropriate for you to say, I'm an adopted son of God, and yet you have not yet experienced that personally. Now, you have the down payment of that. The Spirit indwells you. You have the ongoing effects of that in the fruits of the Spirit that are being born out in your life. In your battle with sin, you see the Spirit's power in you. You know that there is new life granted. You have a new heart. You have new eyes to see, new ears to hear. All that is true. And you are experiencing all of those because you are a son. But your adoption will be completed and it will be experientially completed when you receive your glorified body in the presence of Christ. And so until then, we're here dealing with this life. And in particular, chapter 8 focuses on the suffering in this life while knowing that glorification is what is coming. So in chapter 5, back in chapter 5 at the beginning of this section, Paul says in verse number 2, Through him we also have attained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. This is distinctly Christian and this is paradoxical. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Flip back to chapter 8. We find this exact same reality communicated to us here. 
verse number 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Right? So Paul's assuming some things in this section, in its context. We're talking about the hope of the gospel, that there is a future and it includes total glorification for the believer. There's a down payment that's been granted and it's the Holy Spirit who's present with you. But more critically, in the context in which we find ourselves in verses 28 through 30, Paul is trying to make the case that suffering in this present life has an eternal purpose. And therefore, we can rejoice in that suffering. So what is God's good plan in my suffering? And here's here's the, the main idea. Don't miss this. Romans 8, 28 to 30. If we're to put it in a nutshell, if you are in Christ this morning, okay, you're here and you're a Christian, and you are looking for a silver lining in life circumstances, you are selling yourself short. So if you go through life and, and you wreck your vehicle or you stub your toe and you're thinking, well, there's got to be a silver lining in this story somewhere, you are selling yourself Way short, because if you're a child of God, he has a much grander purpose in his good plan in your suffering. And that's what we'll find as we unfold this text in the next few minutes. All right, now this is going to terrify some of you who have been with us a while. I'm going to give you six truths that come from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. If we go 10 minutes apiece, no, I'm just teasing you, okay? Six truths. Six truths, and these are straightforward. These are supposed to be simple and brief, but I hope this will help you get a grasp of verses 28 through 30 so that you can come back to this and you can readily answer the question, what is God's good plan? Okay, number one, number one truth that flows from this section about God's good plan in your sufferings. Number one, the good plan is a real plan. There actually is a plan. Paul says in verse number 28, and we know That for those who love God, all things work together for good. So there is an actual plan that Paul not only knows about as an apostle, but he assumes that the believers at the Roman church also know about. And if he were here, he would assume the believers at Grace Church of the Valley know that there's a good plan in the heart of their Abba Father in their suffering. So if you're here this morning and you're suffering, There is a real plan from God for this suffering. And it may or may not include the end of the suffering. Okay, So first of all, from verse number 28, the good plan is a real plan. If you can buy one book on the letter to the Roman church, if you can buy one helpful book that will guide you through it, buy... Thomas Schreiner's commentary on Romans. Schreiner should be a familiar name to some of you. Uh, good German name there. Thomas Schreiner. Okay, Thomas Schreiner on Romans says this. The text does not say all things are intrinsically good or pleasant, but instead that the most agonizing sufferings and evils inflicted on believers will be turned to good by God. So it will be for You're good that you are suffering in the way that you're suffering. 
This is distinctly Christian, and yet this is truth number one. The good plan is a real plan. We believe that God has actively planned what is being done in your life through your circumstances. Number two, in verse number 28, we find truth number two. The good plan is only for Christians. So the good plan is a real plan. And secondly, the good plan is only for Christians. There is a very specific group of people who you could say to their face, I don't know what it feels like to go through the suffering that you're experiencing, but God has a good plan in this for you. There's only a certain group that you can say that to. The others need to hear you say, I don't know what it's like to go through the suffering that you're going through, but I will pray that it will draw your heart to the great glories of Jesus Christ who suffered far beyond anything you've ever experienced to redeem sinners. That, that's the only other answer you can give. But there is a group of people who can be confident that this good plan is for them, and we find it in verse number 28. Now notice the descriptors that Paul uses to talk about Christians. And we know that for those who love God, that's the first description that Paul gives. We know that for those who love God, this is the situation of the children of God. They, they love God. This is not a condition. Okay, Don't misunderstand. This is not, if I love God enough, he'll do something good through this circumstance. Okay, So here I am in the middle of suffering. I'm in the middle of the trial of my life. And if I can just love God enough, then, then he'll do something good for me. No, this is a description of those who are already gods who will receive his good plan. It's those who love God. 1 John four nineteen, we love him because he first loved us. So we've received his grace and we're identified as those who love God. Now, second descriptor that's used by the apostle in verse number 28 comes after the promise of all things working together for good. The second descriptor is for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is a second description of the same group of people. And really, it's a further description. Who is it that loves God? It's those who are called according to his purpose. That, that's who they are. They say, well, I love God. If you love God through faith in Jesus Christ, you've come into a relationship. It is because you have been called according to his purpose. This is our identity as Christians. We're the ones who God called out for his own glory. And thus, we love him. And apart from his calling, we hate him. In Luther's biography, he talks of how even as a priest who gave biblical insights each week, he did not stand neutral with God. He certainly did not love God, but what he saw in his soul was hatred for God. And apart from the gracious, saving work of God calling us to himself, John chapter 6, we would not be lovers of God. Now, this has everything to do with how we view our lives in Christ. So the big question that should be on our minds when we read verse 28 and we're identified as those who are called according to his purpose what does it mean to be a Christian? I'm called according to the purpose of God. So the question needs to be, what is God's purpose in this and how can I accomplish it? How can I be a part of God's purpose? Because that's my identity. I'm the one who's been called to his purpose. I joyfully submit to his divine plan for my existence. If you're in Christ, you are a lover of God and you are called out by God 
And therefore, the promise of verse number 28 is for you. So the good plan is a real plan. The good plan is for Christians. Apart from Christ, we will not know the good plan working together all things. Third truth that comes from these verses. The good plan is a real plan. Secondly, the good plan is only for Christians. Thirdly, the good plan is from sovereign grace. The good plan is from sovereign grace. Notice verse number 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The emphasis here is clearly on God's authoritative free grace that he laid upon us, not because of our merit, not because we had earned it, not because he had noticed us, but because according to his sovereign pleasure, he chose to bestow it upon us. Ephesians chapter 1 comes to mind. Certainly the next chapter in Romans chapter 9, Paul makes a point of explaining this further. But we find a nutshell version of the sovereign grace of God which accomplishes his good plan at the beginning of verse number 29. Now let's just pause for a moment and examine these terms and have a little broader understanding. For those whom he, and that is God, foreknew. So there are people who God foreknows. And those people whom he foreknows, he predestines to a certain plan. So those two are directly connected. And many have battled and struggled with what is meant by foreknowledge. This foreknowledge that is described in verse number 29 is a forelove on God's part for covenant people who are undeserving of it. You say, how in the world can you say that? Well, let's, let's look. Let's look at that. First of all, I want to take you to the human expression of foreknowledge in your New Testament. So let's go to Acts. Acts chapter 26. And let's see this same term used in reference to humans. Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Context here is Paul standing before King Agrippa. He says in verse number four, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. All right. In verse number five, in the first part of verse number five, we have this word used. They, that is the Jews, foreknew. For a long time that I lived as an all-star Pharisee. That's what Paul says. So there is a sense in which this is simply a knowledge aspect on a human level. They knew before and they have known for a long time. They have pre-known. Second illustration of this same truth. Flip over to Second Peter chapter 3. If you can get there or you can just hear me. Actually, I'm there already. So why don't we just hold tight and I'll read this to you. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. You, therefore, Peter says, beloved Christians, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and those of your own stability and lose your own stability. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Now, what is it that Peter is addressing in verse number 17 when he talks about the Christian's foreknowledge? He's talking about what he has just communicated in chapters 1 and 2 and the first part of chapter 3 in his letter to the believers in Asia. And what he's saying is, the end times are coming, Christ will return, the false will be punished, the true will be rescued, and because you now have foreknowledge of those events, you should live differently. So, in a human perspective, you have foreknowledge, and I have foreknowledge. We have foreknowledge of what will take place when Christ returns. But you see, the New Testament deals dramatic, dramatically different when it comes to God's foreknowledge. And when we find God's foreknowledge, we find it connected to relationship. Human foreknowledge is connected to information. God's foreknowledge is connected to relationship. And we're going to see that, and we're going to walk right through. Go back to Genesis. Still don't see a clock, so go back to Genesis. And we'll dive in here, and I hope I can make this point quickly and move forward. Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18 and verse number 19. Well, let's read in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? That is, to Sodom. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And then notice verse 19. The ESV says, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham to what he has promised him. Now, if you have an ESV, you have a little number beside chosen. Probably if you have the same copy that I have, number three. And if you'll go down to the very bottom of your page, you'll find the word known. It'll say Hebrew known. The idea here is what God has foreknown about Abraham is directly connected to this context. For I have foreknown Abraham so that he may keep my commands and be the recipient of my promises. Directly connected to the covenant relationship between God and Abraham is the foreknowledge of God. Jeremiah chapter 1. Go past Psalms and then hit the brakes. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now what was Jeremiah supposed to be encouraged about when he heard from the Lord, verse 5? That God had both known him and consecrated him. And those two were directly connected. I foreknew you, Jeremiah. That is, I had placed my, my gracious love upon you and consecrated you to an activity as a prophet before you were ever born. Paul says the same thing in Galatians. That while he was in his mother's womb, God had set him apart to be an apostle. Romans, back to chapter 11 in Romans We'll probably have to stop here because we're going to run out of time. And somebody has to have something cooking this morning at home. Romans chapter 11 and verse number 2. God has not rejected his people, that is Israel. Notice the next phrase. Whom he foreknew. It is directly connected to his relationship. And Israel has a unique relationship to God. They are his covenant nation. 
and he has not rejected them. The argument in Romans chapter 11 is the gospel is still being accomplished in Israel. A remnant is being saved out because God has not rejected them. He foreknew them. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And God returns to Elijah's accusation. Just wipe him out, Lord. Verse number four. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee to Baal. Foreknowledge in our New Testaments and throughout our scriptures when it relates to God is a relational foreknowledge. It is a salvific foreknowledge. It is a covenantal foreknowledge. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 talks about God's relationship to Jesus. He foreknew and predetermined Jesus to die at the cross. Are the Romans guilty? Yes. Did the Gills, did the Jews scream for Jesus to be crucified? Yes. Had God foreknown and predetermined that that would be the way he would die? Yes. Because he had foreknown the son and predetermined the sacrifice of the son. First Peter chapter one, verse two and 20 also bring home the reality that God's foreknowledge is God's loving covenant of knowing before. So back to chapter eight and verse number twenty nine, the good plan is connected always to sovereign grace. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, that is, he set their destiny. And here is the heart of the, the, the crux of the matter here in verse number 29, he predestined. God simply preordered for those who were in Christ, those who are called according to his purpose, those who love him. He predetermined their situation as they suffer in this life. Philippians 1.6, he started our salvation, he'll continue our salvation, he'll complete our salvation. So, what is the good plan? If God has chosen us, if he has known us lovingly before we were born, and in that loving foreknowledge, he has predestined us to something, and all things work together for good, then what is the good that he has predestined us to while we suffer in this life? So the good plan is a real plan. Secondly, the good plan is only for Christians. Thirdly, the good plan is from sovereign grace. And now we come to the fourth truth. The good plan is for our conforming to Jesus. See in verse number 29. Because or for. So how can we know that all things work together? Well, because God knew us before he saved us. And because God predetermined those who are his would be conformed to the image of his son. So here's the. Here's the heart of the matter. You're suffering in this life. You're wondering how in the world can God be good and I be going through this experience because in this experience, God's good plan for you is to conform you to the image of his son. That is the universal good plan of God in every suffering scenario for his people. You will look more like Jesus Christ because you are suffering right now than if you weren't suffering right now. That's the mystery. That is where we place our trust and our confidence and our hope is derived. If you have lost a loved one, you are more like Christ having lost that loved one than if they had remained. If you have lost possessions and worldly goods, you can be more like Christ. And it is God's plan to make you more like Christ because of your suffering. If you're persecuted. If we go to jail as a church. 
North Korean lady was executed last week for passing out Bibles. If that happens, and we're meeting the next Sunday after you've been executed, we'll be able to say that as the body of Christ, having suffering like that, we can be more like our Savior. That's the good plan of God. Why did God allow this to happen to me? So that you would look more like His Son. Because that's the purpose for which He called you. That's your identity. You say, you know what? I don't think I want to look like His Son if this is what it takes. Then you don't understand what discipleship is. It's taking up a cross, dying to myself, and following Christ. I don't want to be made into the image of Christ if it includes this kind of suffering then you don't rightly identify yourself as called according to His purpose. You see? This is the bedrock truth that must gird us up when we are suffering in this life, waiting and groaning for the coming of glorification. God's grand purpose in your life and in my life, in our suffering, is to conform us to the likeness of of his son. And this will be ultimately accomplished at the end of verse number 30 in our glorification. Folks, this is why James chapter 1 verses 2 through 8. This is why it's so connected to this text. My brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you face various kinds of trials. Now, how in the world can you say that? Because various kinds of trials are the testing of your faith and the testing of saving faith that has been granted by God as a part of His sovereign grace. The testing of that faith faith will produce endurance and that endurance will ultimately provide assurance of God's work in your life. You're strengthened, you're conformed, you're shaped by the good plan in your suffering. There's no mystery. You don't have to say, I don't know what God's going to do in this situation. I don't know what God's plan is in this. I don't know what His good will is in this. Yes, you do. If you're a believer, it's for you to be more like Christ. For you to submit more fully under the authority of the Father. For you to be conformed to the humility of the Son. For you to be conformed to the patience in suffering of your Savior. When you read what happened to your Savior, as He was beaten and spit upon, and He stood there silently, peacefully, at rest. When you, read your, when you read the Savior saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And your boss is treating you like trash. And you're giving yourself 100% every day. What in the world is God doing? He's conforming you to the image of His Son. He's making you a better reflection of the character of Jesus. What's God's good plan in my suffering? His good plan is to make you look like Jesus. How much are you allowing that plan to be active in your life and in your suffering today? I knew when I had seven pages of notes that we had bitten off way more than we could chew. Truth number five, and I'll just blast through this. The good plan is for the glorious fame of Jesus. Say, why does God have this plan? Well, he didn't leave that to mystery either. Verse number 29, quickly look at the end of the verse. When you find these three words put together, please 
If you're not an underliner, just do it anyway. Underline these words. Highlight them something. In order that, okay? Whenever you find those three words, it's telling you the purpose. What's God's purpose in conforming us to the image of his son as we suffer in this life? In order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, we don't have time, but Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, clearly communicate that the firstborn one is not the first one to be born. Jesus is clearly the the creator of all that exists. He was not created. Yet he was born. And as the firstborn, he is the preeminent one. It is the first heir. It's a place of supremacy. And what we find the Apostle Paul communicating to us here is that the purpose of conforming us to the image of Jesus through suffering in this life until glorification is to make Jesus famous. It's to make him the firstborn among many brothers. We are the adopted brothers of Christ. We've been brought in as heirs, we read earlier. The mystery of God's saving plan. As he conforms us to the image of his son, as he whittles away at us, as he burns away the dross, as he refines us with refiner's fire. And we look more and more like Christ. Jesus becomes more and more famous. I pray. That Grace Church would suffer as much as it takes for us to shine brightly for the fame of Jesus Christ. God, don't hold anything back from us that would help us to better reflect and to make famous the glory of Jesus Christ. The God-man who gave his life to save sinners. So the good plan is for conforming you to Jesus And that good plan is for the glorious fame of Jesus. The divine purpose for our conformity to the image of Christ is to set Jesus apart on the pedestal as the firstborn, the preeminent supreme one. We don't get the fame because we've suffered and been conformed to Christ. He gets the fame. Our suffering conforms us to the image of Jesus and our conformity to the image of Jesus makes Jesus more glorious in his preeminence over many adopted brothers and sisters. Sixthly, and finally, it's amazing that I'm going to try to breeze through this in 30 seconds. Sixthly, the good plan is as guaranteed as heaven itself. The good plan is a real plan. The good plan is for Christians only. The good plan is from sovereign grace. The good plan is for our conformity to Jesus. The good plan is for the glorious fame of Jesus. And the good plan is as guaranteed as heaven itself. Verse number 30. And those whom he predestined, he called. I mean, these are directly connected. If God predestined, he also called. That is, brought them to himself. And those whom he called, brought to himself, made irresistibly beautiful the person and work of Jesus Christ, therefore drawing us to himself. Those ones he also justified. That is, he credited us with the righteousness of Christ and credited our wickedness to the account of Christ and punished him at the cross for our sin. That's the great exchange. If you've been called, you've been justified. And if you've been justified, notice the end of verse number 30. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this is fascinating. Paul uses the past tense for glorification to people that are still alive and suffering in this world. And I don't know about you, but you probably would raise your hand with me and say, I have not been glorified. I don't think this is what he's talking about. Paul uses a fascinating grammatical tool here. 
He says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what's fancy term, future heiress. That means a future past tense. It is so sure. It is so real to the Apostle Paul. It's as if it has already taken place. These are, these are uh, the twine that make a rope. You cannot take them apart without losing the strength of the whole. Predestined, called, called, justified, justified, glorified. And in the justified to glorified, we have the gap of sanctification. And in the gap of sanctification, we suffer as the people of God. And the good plan of God in that gap is to conform us to Jesus. So that Jesus is more famous while we are here in the presence of the lost. And he receives the glory through eternity as we bow at the throne and say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory. There is no mystery. There's no reason to wonder. We may wonder how exactly we're being conformed to the image of Christ. But this can be our confidence. Unbeliever this morning, fall on your face. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Christ and know his forgiveness. Believer, keep reading. Verse number 31. What then shall we say to this? What could we respond to this kind of truth? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or losing your job, or losing your house, or losing your loved ones? Will that eliminate the good plan, the love of Christ? As it is written, verse 36, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! Verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Unbeliever, fall in repentance and faith. Believer, fall in worship and submission to your Savior and Lord. His good plan is good, and it is his plan, and it is for you. I don't know why you lost your job, but I know that as a believer, God will make you more like Christ because of this. And so I'm going to pray for that to be the active part, and we'll look for God's provision in a second job. Brother, I don't know why your fiancé broke your heart, but I know that in the breaking of your heart and the suffering you're experiencing, you are more like Christ. Christ, and I'm going to pray that that'll be evident and we'll look to God for the next step in his plan for you. It may not be another girl. Sorry, single guys upward. You're real excited to come now. This is real exciting news. If you're a believer, this is how we respond. This is the first layer of comfort that we have to go to. We're the recipients of this good plan because God has sent his son to die for us and as Christians this morning. We're going to pause, and if you can bear with it, we're going to take 10 minutes and remember that sacrifice. This is our spiritual alarm clock.
right here. Um, Jesus instituted this so that as forgetful people awaiting his return, we would not lose sight of what he's accomplished on our behalf. So we're going to drink a little thing of juice. We're going to eat a little piece of nothing bread. Say, so what is this? Is this a ritual? Is this tradition for this church? No, no. This is our spiritual alarm clock. This is our reminder that, yes, these things are true. His blood was shed. His body was broken. And it was, it was for me he did these things. It is the cross that makes obedience to Romans chapter 8 possible. So as the men come and prepare to pass the elements to us, let's prepare our hearts. Turn a page over, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And let me just give you this word of warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, verse 27 says, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, if you're here this morning and you are not in Christ, you have never experienced the application of the blood and body of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ to you. Please, please do not partake of this. It is a layer of guilt upon you. You are joining in the mockery of those who said, save yourself. In fact, Paul says there are some who were even dead because of their mockery of the Lord's table. Believers, if you're here this morning and your life is a joke held up to the cross, you are living in such a way as to bring reproach upon Christ. You have unresolved sin. Do not partake of this. Deal with sin in your heart. Commit yourself today to dealing with the sin that has been done towards others. Come back and enjoy the fellowship of the body of Christ, remembering the cross of Christ the next time we remember this. Father, use this time for us to be reminded of the first truth that makes your good plan a good plan for us. We pray it in the name of Christ, the one who died. Amen.